Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. I brought back to the campaign years later what I think was a sort of a fresh vision for what the Manhattan DA's office could be in 2010. And that meant focusing on making sure that our criminal justice footprint was directed at the right place. It isn't just businesses that benefit from strong leadership and solid principles. When those in public office can see clearly what needs to be done, there can be a big payback for everyone. It was a time when we as an office were in a unique position to do our job making big bets on supporting our communities and our city partners. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. A great thinker once said, what's right is not always popular and what's popular is not always right. Our guest on the show today has built a legacy on bold but hugely influential decision-making. Today we're joined by Cyrus Vance Jr., best known for serving as New York County's top law enforcement officer for 12 years. As Manhattan District Attorney, he oversaw everything from white-collar fraud to cybercrime, human trafficking, and even cold case homicides. He's now a partner at global law firm Baker McKenzie, where he wears three hats sitting on its litigation and government enforcement and global investigations and compliance groups, while serving as global chair of the cybersecurity practice. After graduating from Yale University and earning his JD from Georgetown Law Center, Cy entered his first stint in public service as assistant district attorney in the office that he would later be elected to lead. His career has taken him everywhere from Africa to the Pacific Northwest, and we're very fortunate to have him as a guest today. I sat down with Cy to talk about some of his biggest cases and the changes he was able to make in the DA's office and beyond. Let's enter the arena with Cyrus Vance. My father was a, a lawyer in New York City and a well-known lawyer, and I think like probably some other sons, I struggled not to follow his path. And when I got out of college, I was very interested in global issues, as I think many are. And I spent time in law school and then between college and, and law school and during law school, helping fund it, working for a oil and shipping company. And that took me regularly to West Africa, where we worked in oil trading and transportation and all the countries from Zaire up to Senegal. So that was uh, on and off for five years, and it was a great experience. But doing business in Africa, I think, requires a sort of a comfort with business practices, which I just didn't think were going to be the best foundation for me going forward. I came back, did law school, and then, as you said, was a, was a young assistant DA for six great years under Bob Morgenthau. 
And then my family and I, with our first child on the way, my wife's from a big family and mine is somewhat big too. And we decided we needed to go somewhere where we had room to make our own mistakes. So we went out to Seattle and spent a generation. We raised our kids up through high school and then came back to New York City after 16 years. My mom and, and sister were very ill and it was just time to pull our families together. And so in 2004, we came back to New York and practiced law with a great white collar law firm and then decided that it was going to run for DA, which when I was a young assistant DA in the 80s, that was the job that if I could have a job, it would be to be the Manhattan District Attorney. And I decided to take a shot. I would assume you left a comfortable and lucrative situation in order to do that. How did your father being in public service kind of influence that decision? What did you learn from him growing up and how did that affect your decision to kind of run? Well, my father was first and foremost, someone who saw himself as a lawyer and a litigator, even though he really wasn't one, but he had that DNA that that was his sort of home base. So he maintained a lifelong career in and out of public service with a firm called Simpson Thatcher Bartlett here in New York City. It's a great firm. It was very small when he started. So I saw first and foremost him moving in and out of government. But I think also as a young man, I saw how law was to my father important in ways that I could understand and admire. He was doing things for whether it was people or the city or companies that were important. Yeah. And he was making a difference and it was both intellectually satisfying to him and emotionally satisfying. So as much as I internally tried to find a different path for myself, I think like many sons, gravity, and in my case, I think the good fortune of having a sort of a father, a role model who loved what he did, pulled me into into the same orbit. And 30 years later, I, you know, it's been, it's been a good run. What was it like actually running, like running for an office? Did that come naturally to you? It didn't come naturally at all. I think for some people, everyone's wired differently. And I think some people seem to go through campaigns and what is often and was in my case, acrimonious, personal. God knows why Americans put up with this shit, but they do. And I was, you know, I frankly was not by nature designed for that kind of experience, nor was I particularly good at it. I think when I look at the other candidates who ran against me, I think one was much more polished and had the, the support of the uh, of politicians in Albany, and the other was hard-nosed, very experienced, former judge. And I'd say somewhat miraculously, I won. I found running for office and the, the sort of eye-gouging of it difficult. And and I'm sure I took attacks personally when that's just the way it is. You should just know better. And even in office, I think it took me a while to understand, and with Joan Valero's great help, how to work with the media, how to not rise to every insult, and that you've just got to stay on your path, define yourself, but you can't rise to every insult. Take some self-control, I would imagine. And, uh, you know, I'd be like, why are you saying that about me? That's not true. <laughs> yeah, which, of, which, of course, which, of course, really is not a very effective way to change the narrative. But in any event, I got better at it. But I must say, I've never found it easy. And some people seem to find it easy. I suspect, actually, that they don't. But they're very good at covering it up. What was it like returning to the office after 25 years? Like, what was the same and what was different? In sort of scary ways, there were similarities. I felt like I had advanced. Many of the same people were actually there when I came back. 
that had been there 25 to 25 plus years before. And I felt we all, it was like we'd become more ghostly. We had now gray hair and, and a little more pallid. And, <laughs> and I could see that being a, an assistant DA is a stressful job. And I could see the miles on the car had had taken effect for a lot of the folks I'd worked with. But it was, the office was much the same. And I think there, that, that was kind of the challenge. It was an office that that was this extraordinary office, but it did need to move into the 21st century. It had no real vision around cyber competence. And that turned out to be a big bet for me. And I think today, as we look at it, really one of the most important global public safety challenges we face. So there was really no dedicated investment there. It was before the era of today's progressive prosecutors. But I would say at the time that I ran, I was, I look, I'd been a defense lawyer for 20 years. I'd been yeah. steeped in, in criminal justice policy, learning it on the West Coast. I would have never been the Manhattan DA had I not left New York. I mean, it, yeah, it, interesting. You, I really had to pull, by pulling myself out, by having a career in a different part of the country, I think I brought back to the campaign years later a what I think was a sort of a fresh vision for what, a pro what the Manhattan DA's office could be in 2010. And that meant focusing on making sure that our criminal justice footprint was directed at the right place, that we weren't over-criminalizing or over-prosecuting, which I felt we started the office with 100,000 cases a year. Ultimately, when I left, and there's a punchline here, when I left, we had reduced the number of cases we prosecuted to about 45,000. Now, one might say, well, that's crazy. Crime must have gone nuts when you made that decision. And these were mostly low-level offenses like marijuana and other offenses. But crime dropped every year in that decade. So there's a narrative out there, and I think it's a false narrative, that being very judicious, investing in alternative traditional prosecution, investing in community sanctions in the decade until everything blew up with COVID and everything did blow up after COVID in the spring of 2020 and crime has, yeah. we can talk about why that happened. But the fact, I think a decade of experience proves that you can be very careful about where you're investing your criminal justice dollars. You can focus on the most serious cases of white collar crime, gun crime, sex trafficking, rape, robbery, murder. And there was a time to have a peace dividend. We had a lot of money. Our office had literally hundreds of millions of dollars which we obtained by forfeiture in investigations against foreign banks who were violating federal and state sanctions legislation. And we invested those monies back into the communities of Manhattan, into the police department, helping to modernize it, and into national efforts like ending the rape kit backlog. So it was a time when we, in concert with our government, our community, and our criminal justice partners, we were actually able to significantly reduce crime at the same time as I think being smarter about managing our criminal justice authority. So I want to rewind to something that you just talked about is, is, you know, New York's the financial capital of the world and your office had oversight on all these financial institutions. International banks were accused of violating U.S. sanctions, moving money for countries like Iran and Sudan and Libya. And those multi-million dollar settlements, as you said, the New York Times had a headline, Cyrus Vance has $808 million to give away. And you kind of articulately just kind of told us what you did with all of the money. I would imagine you were invited to a lot of galas for charities during that time. Is that accurate? The act actually, <laughs> no, it's funny that you think 
things are going to happen because you perceive that they will if you have a lot of money. But really, it was it wasn't that way. You know, we had to be very careful about we had to account to the city. We had to account to the federal government and we had to account to ourselves on how those monies were spent. We actually did two things. One, we invested a substantial amount of those dollars in just straight up helping New York City. $100 million to the NYPD so they could bring in their mobility initiative. The technology the NYPD has in their hands and in their cars today is in great part because of the Bill Bratton saying, hey, Cy, we need to really up our game in New York with technology. Can you help? And the answer is, of course. We gave $100 million to NYCHA to help invest in the highest crime housing developments to enhance safety in those or to help New York City manage community supervision. We invested heavily in funding education in prison for the whole state of New York. This is where decisions that are sort of counterintuitive, I think, can make a difference. If the number one, statistically, the most important thing you can do to someone for someone who was in prison is to get them a college education. Yeah. The people who come out of prison with a college education have the lowest recidivism rates, period. Investing, well, from a political standpoint, uh, legislators would say, well, why are we investing? Why is, why is that guy who's in prison for armed robbery getting a college education when my nephew can't afford one on the outside? That's a very good question. And I think he should go back, he or she should go back to his legislators and talk about college funding. But I could tell you as the DA, dollars I was investing and we were investing in partnership with the government was going to reduce recidivism for some of the men and women coming back to their communities that we were most worried about. And they needed, and that was an investment I was very comfortable making. So those are examples. And then the other, you know, roughly about 250 to $300 million, we created actually what we called a criminal justice investment fund, which was you know, had directors and had a, was managed by very sophisticated and professional folks who wanted to make sure that our selections for grants were competitive, were monitored for efficiency and for integrity. We had a lot of money, but we had to approach it really as a foundation. And that's what we tried to do. And I think Joan Valero was a big part of that and in helping us talk about it. I don't think many folks knew about it, but it was, it was a time when we as an office we're in a unique position to both do our job prosecuting cases and making big bets on supporting our communities and our city partners. Yeah. I mean, I had to imagine after all that hard work in your career, that had to be one of the more gratifying time periods where you could actually help the city beyond your day job, right? I mean, first of all, it was entirely unexpected. And definitely, it really was something that I felt we could all look back with real satisfaction and pride that we gave more than we took. Financial institutions weren't the only ones to get caught in the crosshairs at Cyrus Vance's office. After issuing a new report in 2012 that placed pressure on anti-corruption laws and white-collar criminals, the DA's office took a look at former President Donald Trump. I asked Cyrus if he knew his work would head in this direction after he was hired. First of all, the anti-corruption laws at the state level are not as robust as they are at the federal level, period, full stop. And while we, we issued a report in 2012, a very detailed report, which is still out there, on what New York needed to do as a state to revise its white-collar criminal laws, from fraud to public corruption. And basically, the legislature has not risen 
to the call to action. While we've tinkered with our anti-corruption laws, they are not, I believe, where they should have been in 2012 and still aren't today. The federal government, as a consequence, has been the cop on the beat when it comes to public corruption. And in some sense, I think that also makes sense. People are suspicious that DAs won't charge cops and DAs won't charge other state actors. Now, that's not true. There can be a perception. There could be a perception. And if you make a good faith decision not to charge, that can be perceived as it's because it's a police officer. And of course, I took no pleasure in charging police officers, but we charge many and when we should. The feds, I think, have evolved over the last 15 years to be what I would say are the primary players in this space. Now, with regard to the former president, I certainly did not predict that investigation would arise. But what I did find is the Manhattan DA's office, because of its broad jurisdiction, and I think also because of its tradition, the kinds of cases it's prepared to take on, the kinds of cases my predecessors took on, which were in many cases, big cases that stood for more than just a single prosecution, but for a public will to take on some of the toughest cases and challenges. Whether it was Harvey Weinstein in 2019 or Donald Trump and, and is the Trump organization in, in 2021, sometimes the feds don't act. And I think it's entirely appropriate that the Manhattan DA, if it has jurisdiction, should act. And so there's sort of an inverse there where the feds may have the best laws, but for some reasons they don't act. And that was the case in, in our investigation into the Trump organization, which started in 2017, which was when my colleagues at the Southern District asked us to, to put a pause on it because they said they were moving in a parallel manner and didn't want, as I understand, to have sort of conflict between our investigation and theirs. And so I, I acceded to that request, which I thought was the right was the right decision. But I was somewhat surprised when in 2019 they or 18, they indicted Michael Cohen and that was it. And so we then went back into the investigation and had a it was COVID had COVID started. So that was a very that was an impediment to getting work done. The, we had to take two long trips to the Supreme Court to get the former president's tax records. But I think that was both a fascinating experience and one which reaffirmed the principles that I think we have to be reminded still matter, which is you can be the president, but that doesn't mean you're immune. And by the way, litigating against the president, as he was for a period of the time, is a very unusual experience. There are many guardrails that the laws and practice put around the presidency to protect it, which I fully agree with. You don't want nutty things happening to the president. But in our case, I was also somewhat surprised where the president himself commenced a lawsuit against our office and myself in federal court to block our efforts to subpoena his tax records, attach the grand jury subpoena, which made everything that was supposed to be secret public. And then the attorney general of the United States advocated on behalf of the president, as did the solicitor general. And it was a matter of the president's personal behavior prior to when he had become president. So you can see where the protections pop up and they you can understand why they're there but I think, it, at least in our case, I think they were misused. Does part of you wish you were still in office to see that prosecution through? Or are you happy? I'm sure you're happy where you are, but does a little part of you still want to be involved in that? Look, I think we did a lot of work. I think the prosecution of the Trump organization was the first big chapter in what is continuing both at the state and federal levels, it appears. 
I think it was very important that we did it. I think it was very difficult to do, but I think we saw through our responsibilities. And then I had a decision to make, was I going to run again or not? And I had made the decision for a number of reasons that I thought it was time for me to move on. And I think also that it was 12 years in the job was a privilege and it was sometimes difficult. But I also felt, frankly, that it, it was time that you have to let someone else have a seat at the table if you want an organization and a public institution to grow and change. And I think Mr. Bragg coming in as DA, first black DA in Manhattan, I think his life experience in the long run will prove to be a real benefit to the Manhattan DA's office. And so I felt it was both personally time to go. And as much as I was invested in the work that we had done that was continuing up until the time it wasn't, I was comfortable with my decision. And certainly I follow the news. And like everybody, I'm amused, confused and fascinated. We have a lot of listeners who are CEOs of companies and they run businesses. And the one thing that really struck me in prior to this interview is that the Manhattan DA's office is, is like one of the biggest public law offices in the country, 500 attorneys, 700 support staff, buildings all over New York. What did you learn about just managing that enterprise? That, that just seems impossible to do, what was kind of like almost chief executive officer experience of that job and managing it and keeping people fired up? I think what we did uh, that some of the basic things that many public institutions don't do, we had a chief financial officer, which I think was unusual at the time, and a very robust you know, financial analytical staff, particularly with the amount of forfeiture dollars that we were that was were coming into us and that we were investing in our operations and, and outside operations. I needed to have confidence that very smart people were around me who could explain the, the burn rate and the expense rate simply in manners that I could understand and help make balanced judgments on. And so I think the business lesson I learned was that I can't understand all of this by myself. And I needed smart, good people who had experience also in public governance which is different, obviously, than private governance and who understood public public contracting and the like. And so I, if I exercise good judgment, it was really by bringing good people around me. Yeah. Well, you left that position, obviously joined Baker McKenzie, which must have been a great opportunity as global chair of cybersecurity. How do you enjoy the job? How did that opportunity come to you? And what are you trying to accomplish in the current seat that you're in? When I left the Manhattan DA's office, I had really become very involved with and and had a much better comprehension of the scope of the public safety issues around cybercrime. We had built out and the office has now, I think, probably one of the finest investigative cyber units of the country, built a world-class laboratory so that we could do our own forensic analyses and not rely on the NYPD's own priorities about what device examinations to do on what timetable. I came to understand that to protect New York around cyberspace, the defensive perimeter wasn't the perimeter that I thought of when I was a young DA, you know, the East River and the Hudson River. The defensive perimeter is Singapore, Europe, South America. And so yep. we opened liaisons and shared personnel in foreign offices of other prosecutors' offices to, so that we had a much more global view on cyber prevention and managing cyber risk. So I had a real interest in cyber globally. Baker McKenzie is, has a, an enormous footprint globally in cross-border transactions and a real opportunity to help both private companies, but I think as a, 
continuation of a public safety mission by protecting the internet, by protecting companies, by making our cybersecurity more secure, we are, in fact, even in this private space, doing public safety work. That attracted me and being able to do that at a global scale. At the same time, being a lawyer, doing what I really liked and I've always loved to do, which is managing litigation and going to court. I wanted to ask you one thing. I know that former prosecutors in your office, like Mark Pomerantz, are writing books. Do you think you'd ever write a book? I bet it would be super juicy. I'd love to write a book. I'd love to write a book. And I certainly think that what is not clear to the public, putting aside the interesting cases, and there's still too many mysteries about how a big city prosecutor's offices works. And there's a lot of suspicion. And there's a, and there's a lot of distrust. And I think that... Uh, how we arrived at decisions in controversial cases and non-controversial cases. What the cases that mattered most to me, like the Eitan Pates case, the most important case to me, just on personal level, was our ability to resolve a 35-year-old unsolved homicide of a six-year-old boy who left his home in Soho on Friday of Memorial Day weekend. The first day his mom let him take the school, walk the school bus by himself and disappeared. And it's the power of that office and the talent of the people within it. And then the will to say, when the parents came to me and said, we'd like you to reopen the case because we think it merits it. I told them, I, don't, I have absolutely no idea whether we'll be able to make any headway. But ultimately, through a series of hard work, great staff and luck, we answered the question that the Pates family had suffered from for 35 years, and they were a lovely family, what had happened to their son. And what motivates prosecutors? For me, this was a family who had never changed their phone number in 35 years on the thought that Aton might call them, never locked their door, never moved. These are the kinds of cases that offer us the responsibility and the ability to heal and bring closure that make the job extremely satisfying. Yeah. And for people watching you operate, they know that people matter. This something happened 30 years ago or 35 years ago, and it still matters. And it does. And it does. And by the way, the number of unsolved cold cases that exist around America is stunning. And, and what we discovered by opening up a, a cold case unit is that it requires obviously skill and money, but that Science has enabled us to look at cases and what remains of evidence of cases today. And a review of the case, even 15 years later, by fresh eyes, sometimes does, and more often than people imagine, results in developing evidence that solves important cases. Well, one question I did want to ask you, which is a bit of a departure, as I was reading about you in Jillian Tett's lunch with the FT column, a while back, she expressed amazement that your hobby is not golf, but it's riding motorcycles. What is the best motorcycle trip you've ever taken? Because I'd love to do that someday. You know, I think it's really the simple ones. It's my brother-in-law lives in Vermont. He's a glass blower. So we have a house upstate and, and to you know, connect with family, just take off, go up to northern Vermont, you know, freezing cold. And to be in that beautiful open space, it's something that, look, even a car trip will give you that. But a motorcycle is like riding a horse at 70 miles an hour. It's as fun and it's as freeing. And 
So it's, I think, the combination of being with the people you love and doing something that is just plain fun. My last question for you, Sai, is if you never pursued a career in law, like what do you think you would have ended up doing? Any idea? I think I would have wanted to be an artist that was dealing either with printing or sculpture or painting or, or music, frankly. I mean, I, I think those are those kinds of pursuits. People who are brave enough to do them are incredibly rewarding. Cyrus has spent most of his career fighting for justice and doing the right thing, even when it was difficult and unpopular. In the Manhattan DA's office, he took some of the country's most difficult and high-profile cases and used his office to improve the city. His most recent work in anti-corruption and cybersecurity have helped to establish a modern foundation for the country's current political landscape. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Cyrus Vance Jr. for joining me on the show today. Welcome to the Arena has featured a lot of CEOs, but if there was ever a guest that truly is in the arena, it was Cyrus Vance. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.